introduce to you today our new author, Johanna Leikila. We had the great pleasure to include her on our agency's list of authors very recently. Welcome, Johanna, to Rights and Brands Agency and also to speak to us in our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm Johanna's literary agent, Lena Stina Kakko. Johanna, you are one of the upcoming literary authors in Finland with a, definitely a unique voice and strong, distinct stories in, in your books. Um, I'll introduce you shortly first before uh, we start asking questions from you. Um, by now you have published two novels in two years. Your debut, Lilium Regale, was published in spring um, 2019. And then the second one, Hatching, um, last autumn in 2020. So, and you're currently writing already your, your third novel, so that's a very prolific start for a literary career. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Before your debut novel, you studied and, and taught English literature and film in, in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews, where you also did your PhD. What made you leave the academic career and, and turn to fiction? And how does this academic background affect your writing? Or does it affect? Uh, there really wasn't any clear-cut, straightforward cut from academia and sort of this turn to uh, fiction writing as such. Um, I had already decided to move back to Finland um, and I was sort of sorting out all of the bits and pieces I'd gathered over the years, um, you know, sort of organizing all the books and giving them away and um, and at the same time um, I had the manuscript for my first novel at hand already and I sent it to a Finnish publisher a week before leaving Scotland. Oh. <laughs> and then the first week of being back in Finland, I heard uh, from the publisher saying they were interested. Um, and then one thing led to another, and three years later I'm working on the third novel. Um, but it wasn't as much, it wasn't so much a sort of turn, sort of a conscious, conscious decision that I made um, yeah. about leaving academia and turning to fiction altogether but I think because both uh, fiction writing and academic writing they require this certain amount of uh, commitment and full-time um, focus I think it's hard to do both simultaneously um, but having said that there definitely were reasons uh, why I was pulled into the world of fiction writing rather than academic research I think there were a lot of a lot of themes and sort of issues that I wanted to explore um, in prose that weren't really accessible um, in academic academic research mm, and sort of outside these rules and frameworks of, of academia. Um, and I think my background definitely has a, an impact, it has um, an effect on my writing from the way that I approach the writing process in itself to probably the passion for research, um, especially when you write historical fiction, that's quite a nice way of combining the two. Um, and also as a writer you often get asked um, who are your influences, which writers do you, do you read? And I think for me 
and my writing is influenced with is influenced by fiction writers but also by academic writers and thinkers and I think it's quite lovely to be a part of that um, sort of chain of thinkers uh, in terms of not just fiction but also also academic writing. Would you like to name some of the most important influences, both academic and, and fiction authors? Well, there are there's obviously a massive amount of writers that have influenced my thinking and writing, but there are, there's everything from Michal Batin to Judith Butler to um, to different poets um, that I really admire. Um, so it's always this like patchwork quilt of different writers, um, and I think in Hatching, um, which is the second novel, especially Dostoevsky was one of the writers that I was almost engaging in a dialogue with because I had read him since uh, since I was quite quite young. So I had to almost it was almost this process of reading against the grain, reading Dostoevsky, but then. Um, reading, reading him uh, from my own point of view and from the point of view of the protagonist of the novel as well. So I think that was that that, that wasn't intentional uh, to begin with, but then it sort of sort of just came um, it came more important than I had initially thought. And when you say that um, in in fiction, it's it's perhaps easier, or fiction is more prone to addressing certain themes or certain themes from a certain angle. Can can you specify to us uh, what themes have been important to you, or or um, how have you looked at different subjects as a fiction author? Well, in the first two novels, uh, some of the central themes have been um, have been body, the body and language, as well as gender and sexuality. And especially in terms of gender and sexuality, um, there are some limitations um, to looking at these themes as an academic writer, because obviously we don't have a whole lot of material, uh, we don't have a lot of um, first-hand accounts of people who lived in the past and who would be uh, belong to sexual minorities. Mm -hmm. And then again, in, in these representations, in cultural representations such as film and fiction, uh, fiction writing, um, some you can see some characters that can be interpreted as non-straight, and there are these sort of queer undercurrents, if you will, but they are very abstract almost. It's it's quite intangible, and then I think what's missing, inevitably, is the human experience, like this whole sphere of human experience that you can't access uh, because it's just not there. You can always read against the grain, mm -hmm. as I said. Uh, but it's very difficult to sort of get to the to the actual um, individual human experience. So then again, in fiction, you there's this beauty that you can actually write marginalized characters into mainstream history, and you can kind of engage a dialogue between uh, between mainstream history and and say queer characters, uh, since they so often lack a voice in uh, in mainstream. History and historical writing. Um, yes. So, as a as a fiction author, you have more space, more sort of freedom to use your imagination and your maybe apply some of your own 
feelings or or the way of of imagining to a person that could have lived like a hundred years ago. Yes, definitely. That's that's not something that's possible in in academic writing. Uh, but I would like to say that there's uh, there's not really it's not a question of sort of choosing either or or being um, sort of prioritizing fiction writing in any way because I think both are really important that there's also there's also choice to be had from both of them I think like both um, types of writing and it would be quite nice to be able to sort of integrate integrate both yeah they, they support each other I'm, yeah. I'm sure yeah in, in many ways um, let's talk a little more in detail about your second novel Hatching so that one came out in September 2020 in Finnish and it takes place in Helsinki, the capital of Finland, in 1912 and 1917. Um, the story starts with Alexander narrating in first person and he describes quite a lonely existence in a very small apartment translating German literature and playing Chopin on, Chopin on the piano. Um, sorry about the background noise. We are talking about hatching um, in the middle of the first snowstorm in January 2021. And there are um, cars outside and, and uh, alarms going on. So I hope our listeners are not too disturbed by that. But um, So let's get back to Alexandri. Um, Alexandre describes a lonely existence in a in a small apartment translating German literature and playing Chopin on the piano and he meets very few people. Um, but I would claim with almost certainty that at the start of this story when this setting is, is described, the reader has has no idea uh, what they'll be getting later on in the book because there are two really well built twist twists in in your plot and i have to say both of them came as a total surprise to me when i was reading the book for the first time and both of them have to do with the question of identity um for those listeners uh, who haven't yet read the book and don't want to spoil the surprise of of these twists i would recommend you to go to the book now and then come back to us and and the podcast and and listen the rest of this um, only after reading because there will be some spoilers coming from now on. Um, so Alexandra's character, when the story starts in first person narration, I for some reason first imagined the narrator to be a woman. Um, for just a couple of pages um, until you gave the narrator a name, Alexandri, which then fixed the character as as male in in my mind. But when I continued reading, there remained a nagging feeling that there's something I don't quite yet know about this character. And then about 80 pages or so into the story, 
you as as an author shuffle some things and and it was kind of like a flash of lightning that I got to understand the complexity of Alexander's character and sexuality and also his uh, personal history. Um, could you share with us your thoughts and the, and the whole sort of the process of developing this character? Uh, yeah, for me, um, Alexander, his character and sort of the birth of the character in a way, it was the key to the whole story. So there wouldn't be this story wouldn't exist if, if it wasn't for for this character. So I had the idea for the story in mind even before I started writing the first novel but I wasn't quite sure how to approach it um, and it wasn't before I discovered the character and his voice that it really started to unfold um, and come together so he was almost the missing piece. Um, but I want, as you said, there's, um, well you can call it a twist, uh, twist of plot or whatever you like but it's not um, I didn't really think of it as a, a twist of plot as such uh, I think it's it's almost there hiding in plain sight mm. but it's it's uh, undeniably this um, a bit of a play with uh, readers expectations um, definitely but I wanted to play with narrative choices to to allow the character to be like first and foremost um, this person rather than focusing entirely on his gender or sexuality um, and I didn't want it to make I didn't want, want his gender identity to be the be all and the, or the end all of the character um, because he is a very complex character and these bizarre things are happening to him like he finds himself in a very bizarre situation so I wanted to not dissect his gender but to make the character um, a complex human being um, who has many layers to him, all of which um, are interesting and problematic um, as well. Yeah, I, I can only admire the, the subtlety and your skill of writing uh, in creating this complexity and, and how you execute it. You don't want to call it a twist, maybe it's more of a revelation to the reader. Um, because you definitely do play with the expectations and then once the reader realises how, as a reader, you have sort of taken the most obvious route of interpreting this character. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the word revelation is, is a good word of what, what happened to me yeah. on page 80, 80 or, or around there. Um, and you do this on the level of storytelling, that's extremely well done, but also on the level of language, and and that's something I would like to talk about now, um, how you use the language that describes Alexandre's existence to sort of very to a very detailed level. Um, there's beauty in your language, very often there's a lot of grotesque, grotesque um, expressions, and sort of the two, these two, two um, things are very often intertwined as as well. Um, can you comment on the on the role of language when you were creating the character? How intentional it was. 
you said finding his voice was the key to this novel. Uh, yeah, language is definitely one of the uh, key themes uh, in the novel, and especially in relation to Alexander, the protagonist. Um, and the connection between language and the body is something that I keep coming back to as a writer as well. Um, for Alexander in particular, it's also about naming himself and finding language with which to exist in a world that doesn't really acknowledge his existence, that doesn't really have the language to talk about his identity. So it's about finding finding that language and finding the sort of self self-determination and naming yourself um, in a way and also when it comes to writing about his experience it was quite natural to zoom in to his sensory experience as well because the story is very much in Alexander's head so there's very mm. little that's going on um, externally so it came quite organic organically sort of focusing on his sensory experiences, especially his um, auditory experience, but other other sort of um, sensory perceptions as well, uh, because it is so much about him and his uh, internal world, I sort of had to get into his head in a way to describe, uh, describe that experience. Yeah, and the, and the way... Um we or, or the reader gets to know that Alexandre hasn't always been called Alexandre. It's it's very it starts with letters only and then as an auditory experience and and then uh, from those letters um, his his former name yes. starts um, is put together. Yeah, and there's also this um, this element of. Uh, trauma and memories that you carry in your body and then it's reflected in the language as well so it's about this like fragmentation of self in a way and then uh, almost like disintegrating and then putting pieces back together in a way and then carrying uh, carrying language in your body physically as well and then somewhere deep inside, he still carries this name that he was born into, a, a female name. And even though he's taken a new name for himself, there is, like you said, a trauma of, of the name that used to be called real but was actually false. Hmm. Yes, can and I think say that's... That? Yeah. Well, you can, yeah, you can. And I think it's it's almost true to like all, all people. Like, it's... it's Kind of essential to human existence that we have to make peace with the past and we have to integrate it to the present and make it part of um part of kind of a, whole, a narrative of, of our lives so it's a broader issue as well not just to do with this character yeah that's true and it's it's not definitely not a simple process hmm. um so i was taking i was talking about Two twists. Um, first one connecting to to Alexander's character, and then the second one um, that happens toward the end of the book, when the reader, or at least I, I realized the true identity of the other main character of the book. Um, the other main character is a man who lives next door to Alexander, and Alexander calls him Ilya. And then towards the end, um, one realizes that Ilya's um, official name is actually Vladimir Lenin. 
and with this again revelation um, these intense events or Alexandre's experiences and, and uh, the sort of like intimate story that has had a, quite a private atmosphere so far um, it suddenly wraps around historic turning points in an utterly unexpected way, at least it was utterly unexpected for me as a reader, in a wonderful way. And when you remember that the story takes place during the the year 1917, um, so it's just before the Russian Revolution, um, and it it is actually a fact that uh, Lenin um, stayed in Helsinki, during that time um, where did you get this idea of of having Lenin as the other character well that was the whole that was the seed to the story initially because I discovered the character of um, Gustav Robia uh, who was hiding Lenin in his flat in Helsinki in Hakaniemi Um, and that was that was sort of what um, what started the whole process of thinking thinking through the story so it was um, I was I, I sort of had to write about Lenin I didn't want to like I didn't <laughs> I, I was so reluctant to sort of dive in there and actually unpick this um, as you said almost a symbol someone someone who has a symbolic statue and also who's a historical figure who almost everyone in the world has some sort of an idea of um, and, and definitely a controversial character as well so there's very little sort of uh, historical consensus, I, I guess, uh, with with historians either about his um, political political intentions um, and all that. So I was struggle. I was really struggling to see the human being behind behind all that. Um, and you do see all these images of of Lenin, um, sort of in a crowd. Giving a speech, like very this very strong political figure. Then again, towards the end of his life, you see him in a wheelchair, fading away. And then, then there are these like morbid images of uh, of him lying in the mm. in the mausoleum in in Moscow. Um, but as I was going through these piles of learning biographies, I started to discover all of this, uh, all of this detail. Uh, anecdotes and all, all of this sort of stuff that makes characters so that's utterly fascinating like to a fiction writer so I became excited about this character and almost started to forget that it was in fact Lenin because I started, started to discover um, the, the person the person behind behind the symbol um, if you will um, and in the end, it was irresistible not to make him a central character, and I realised that that's what I have to do, and even to to focus quite claustrophobically on on these two characters, uh, Olya and and Alexandri. Um, and to the extent that it was possible, as I was writing, I tried to forget about Lenin and everything that I uh, all the sort of pre- preconceptions that I had about him. Um, because in the end, like eventually, it was going to be uh, a fictional character, anyways. Like there's no way that I could have, um, in any authentic way, portrayed um, the actual person. Person um, in the end, and it happened, like as the as the writing process went on, um, I did have 
fully out your mind and not learning. Mm. So it it definitely helped, like reading, reading all these um, biographies. Yeah, I mean, he definitely um, becomes this character who is of flesh and blood. He's no no longer a symbol. Uh, he is is a, a man and a, and a real character. And there's one of one of the sort of the pulling characteristics in your novel is the tension in the relationship between Alexandre and Lenin. They live next door. They get to know each other, and we experience it from Alexandre's point of view where he's sort of constantly swaying between revulsion and lust and and um, wants to be with him or and, and wants to avoid him and in some way Alexandre is, is addicted um, to, to Lenin. Um, and there's also cruelty between them in, in their relationship. Um, Ilya is like an ob- obsession to Alexandre that makes his life almost unbearable at times. This is, do, do you recognize, or are you with me in this, um, describing this dynamic between the characters, the, the complexity of it? Yes, I think it's a good description. Um, there's a lot of sort of pulling forces in, in their relationship, and I think it can be read in a multiple ways really and as a writer I don't necessarily want to say one or the other is the right way to read it uh, but there definitely is this element of obsession that you mentioned like almost addiction um, definitely that's there and then the cruelty and this miniature scale power struggle that they engage in that's the other aspect of the relationship and this unfolding of mundane violence um, and that was actually one of the things that I set out to do when I started writing the book, was to um, investigate this relationship that isn't that kind of defies any any conventional definitions. It's not romantic in any traditional sense um, at all. But then there's still an element of lust or desire, desire there. But I think that's. Um, that's actually, in general, that's quite uh, quite interesting um, to a writer to think about these spaces in between, because a lot of the times in fiction we have romantic relationships or hatred, but then a lot of the times in real life these these emotions aren't quite so easily separated. Mm. They do like intermingle, and um, and all sorts of relationships um, are formed. So that's um, what I wanted to explore. And it's it's hard to say, like if you think about real life, and uh, how to dissect one feeling from each other and, and, and sort of analyse wh- why and where did this come from. And this is what you can maybe do in fiction. Hmm. Um, at least give a portrayal of, of the complexity of, of these feelings. Yeah, definitely. And the ambiguity, like you can't yeah. really... You can't really um, tell, especially in this relationship, it's, I don't think the characters themselves know no. what's going on necessarily. And also we have to remember that it is a first-person narrative about the relationship, so we know only Alexander's point of view, so we don't know what's going on in Olya's head and what he's going through and, and feeling and experiencing. Uh, so it's very much Alexander's story and experience of the relationship. 
Um, you write with an original literary voice that's both lyrical and fierce at the same time, and uh, there's definitely a lot of sensual um, ingredients in your writing, and I would say that the melody of your language is, is very important. Um, you are bilingual, uh, so you've studied in, in, in Scotland, and you have actually translated hatching into English yourself, um, or, or maybe we should say more rewritten the story in, in English. Um, could you describe this process for us and, and tell us what kind of challenges you faced in, in regards of maybe language in detail, because Finnish is quite different from English as a language? Yeah, um, well, it's a literary translation uh, to begin with, so it's not a literal one, it's mm. not a word-to-word -word one, but um, definitely a literary one. So I would agree that I rewrote the book rather than translated it. Um, so I did aim for loyalty to the original text as well, but a lot of times that requires sort of rethinking word choices, rethinking metaphors or tweaking even narrative choices. Um, there was this one sort of problem in particular that I faced that was because in Finnish we have the gender neutral pronoun han that we use, um, which obviously in English we don't have. Um, and that caused, caused me quite a bit of grief trying to go, go around it and think through it, how, how, to, um, how, to, how to use, um, use narration and be loyal to the original text. Um, and that w without the liberty of the gender-free uh, pronoun, so that was one of the one of the main challenges. And also, I would say verb choices, quite surprisingly, because as I was c going through the original text, there's qu quite a bit of Finnish verbs that don't necessarily translate into English, mm. and they are quite almost like corporeal, very uh, bodily verbs. Um, and I think when you write in your native language in Finnish, you can play with it a bit more. And I think, um, I think it's an element of translator's literature anyway, that it has to be simplified, perhaps. And also English is a lot softer. It's a lot softer language than Finnish is. So I find that the end result also is softer compared to the a lot more rough uh, Finnish original but yeah I would I would agree I, I've read it obviously in English as well and and what you say about the the softer end result I would definitely agree with that but I don't think you've had to to give up on any of the complexities of the, of the stories you mm. found very inventive um, ways to solve well thank solve you that's, that's good to hear obviously but my uh, style of drafting prose is also quite chaotic in that I, I write sort of individual sentences and words um, initially into notebooks before I even touch my laptop. So I only even start writing um, on my laptop like after the story starts to take shape properly. So it was quite lovely to do this differently, to go very methodically from first sentence to last. So it was very, it was very different and quite a ple pleasing experience to do it. Uh, do it differently and it's um, yes it's it's anyways it's a, a sort of a 
process of letting go, you have to let go of the original. You can't, it can't be completely uh, identical. And I think that's the beauty of translation as well. It can't be, um, it can't be the same. But as an author, do you do you think about the English version as a, as an independent one, or are are they like sort of, is it still the same work, or is it a different piece of work? Hmm. That's almost a philosophical question, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe. But I but I think it's um, I think it's the same but different. So I think I think uh, translated um, books, all in all, they are their own pieces of work. They're all, all pieces of writing. Uh, whether the, the translator is the original author or someone completely different. Mm. And it's as I said, it's this process of letting go of the original. And I think having written the original text as well, it was quite a uh, sort of beautiful process of saying goodbye to the original text and letting go of it because you, you could still spend this a while longer in this world and in the world of the the main character. So it was um, it was a really really nice process, but but definitely they are different different. Uh, but somehow there's this, I think there's this core um, in every piece of fiction and you have to keep that, you have to keep that, those core elements and I think those core elements are there and whether you use, whether you kind of change up syntax or use different metaphors or whatever, that's um, quite insignificant in the end um, because of the difference in the languages, you can't, um, can't make it um, similar. Um, in your PhD, you were researching film, uh, more precisely popular British films after the Second World War. How has your expertise in film affected your writing? Can we see it somehow in, in Hatching, for example? Mm. Well, I'm very much into interdisciplinary research and cross-artistic practice and, and dialogue between different art forms. So I think there's a lot of potential of being in between, whether that's in the university context or in uh, in the world of arts. Um, and it's, sometimes it's it's quite difficult to see see it yourself, like how that uh, bleeds bleed into your writing. Um, but I do have a tendency to write scenes, which you could see as this not to the to the visual, or my tendency to also be drawn to the visual side of things and personally because because I I do come from a literary background so I, I originally started to uh, study literature and then only when I was doing my uh, master's and PhD did I sort of cross to the um, to the film side of things and that definitely opened up a whole new world for me um, and not even because I'd always been a bit of a film buff and I'd always enjoyed watching films and thinking about them, but then um, thinking about it in, in such an analytical way definitely definitely changed my thinking, um, I think. So obviously that um, that has an impact on, on the writing as well. And as I said in Hatching, Hatching 2, um, we do have these almost like vignettes or scenes of events, so it's not this sweeping, sweeping narrative um, across a long period of time, but it's a very restricted 
restricted um, time and also these um, sort of scenes that we see in the book. So both of the two novels um, that you've published so far take place in the past, in, in history. Your debut, Lilium Regale, is set in Lapland in 1940s and 50s, and then Hatching in the early 1900s in Helsinki. Um, and in them you reveal stories from history that have been untold until now. Um, but you're already working on the third book, and, and can you tell us what you will be writing about um, in, in your third novel? Is that going to be set in the past as well? Well, it's early, early stages, so it's in that sort of wonderful point where you, we don't know yet where it's going to lead um, exactly, um, and you still want it to keep, you still want to keep it to yourself, um, to... Um, for quite a while, but I can say that I'm going to sort of attempt to dabble in something other than historical fiction this time, um, and sort of look look at the future this time. Um, but still, I'm going to focus on the on kind of similar themes of um, human relationship to nature, and then the role of language and identity as well. So the themes are still going to be the same. You leave us very curious <laughs> and waiting. Well, thank you, Johanna, for, for being our guest today. I very much look forward to taking you and your work to the international publishing world and, and to the readers. Um, we will end our discussion today with introducing a new format in our podcast, um, The Quick Five. So I will shoot you with five questions and, and you can answer them with a, just a short answer. So the first one, well, what is the book that you're reading right now? Uh, Duffel Stewart's uh, Sugar Bane. And what is your favourite place to write? Home. Any particular place at home? Uh, no, anywhere, really. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the most beautiful word in Finnish? Uh, Heliosos which is silence. And if you could spend the day with anyone in the world, uh, who would that be? And mm. uh, Nick Cave, maybe. Well, <laughs> good answer. <laughs> um, and to, to end uh, the quick five, um, who is your favourite Nordic author? Uh, there's two, way too many to mention, just one. Uh, but I'll say Erik Söderkram. Um, the poet, because one of her poems was so central in my first novel, so she has quite a special place in my heart. That's wonderful. And we didn't have time really to speak about your first novel this time, so maybe we'll take another episode for that sometime in the future, maybe in connection with the third book, we'll see. Yeah. But thank you, Johanna. Thank it was you a, so much. It was a pleasure to have you, and um, thank you everyone for listening.